May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Some Sundays it can be a little tough for a congregation to chime out, thanks be to God, at the end of one of the appointed readings. Or at least it can be a bit tough to do so without at least raising an eyebrow. Tonight we've had one of those. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew in which Jesus has one character calling another character worthless and having him thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's more, Jesus even has that character identified in the parable as the master or in the original Greek, Kyrio, Lord, He even has that figure proclaim that, quote, to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away, which seems to rather cut against the grain of so much else that Jesus teaches Just a few chapters earlier, as he brought to a close his parable of the laborers in the vineyard, he'd said, the last will be first, and the first will be last. At another point, we're told that, quote, he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all, and servant of all. And what about the words sung over his life? by Mary, words of promise. In the opening chapter of Luke, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, she sings. But here in this parable of the talents, the master seems to be saying that the lowly are destined to lose what they have and the mighty are going to get even more. The word of the Lord. Gulp. Thanks be to God. Double gulp. Now last Sunday night, Rachel Twig Boyce was faced with an equally challenging parable, peopled with characters who acted in ways that seemed equally uncharitable, unchristian even. And part of what Rachel offered was a reminder that these are parables, not descriptive or prescriptive accounts. In a recently published book called Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi, the Jewish scholar of the New Testament, Amy Jill Levine, makes much the same point as she seeks to help Christians hear the Jewishness of Jesus. Levine helpfully uses the language of short story to press her Christian readers to grapple with the imaginative and, yes, enigmatic nature of Jesus' approach, his short stories. Doesn't mean, of course, that we can conclude that it's, uh, it's just a story or that we can read only the stories we like and leave aside the ones that elude us. I mean, that's the challenge of the lectionary. You don't get to do that. Jesus teaches through these stories, all of them. And any who would place them at the feet of this controversial rabbi, whether disciples of the first century or of the 21st, 
need to contend with all of them. Like the whole series of teachings and parables that fill the 24th and 25th chapters of the Gospel according to Matthew, this parable of the talents is addressed directly and privately to the 12 disciples. In the preceding chapters, Jesus had been teaching quite openly, often in the public square in Jerusalem, and often with the Pharisees and the temple officials very much present, questioning him, trying to back him into a corner. Here, though, for these two chapters, he's been telling his stories to those whom he's been mentoring and shaping over the past few years, that small group. Those, in fact, most accustomed to hearing his the last will be first subversion of the expected order of things. All the more reason to imagine that this particular story must have pretty much kicked the feet out from underneath them. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then the man went away. Well, you heard how it all played out. The one entrusted with five talents, an enormous sum of money, by the way, N.T. Wright says that a talent was equivalent roughly to 15 years' worth of labor wages. So five talents, an enormous amount of money, and that man doubles it, as does the character entrusted with two talents. Well done, good and trustworthy slave, the master says to each of them. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. The third slave, who had received the one talent, went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. As Jesus unfolds his story, this altogether cautious choice turns out to be rather the worst thing the third slave could have done. The master roars at him, saying that at the very least, he could have invested the money with the bankers and earned a bit of interest. The one talent that had been entrusted to him is taken and given to the first slave, who now has, he actually has 11 to work with now, and the third slave is tossed into the outer darkness. Now, if we assume that the master in the parable is meant to represent God, or perhaps even Jesus Christ himself, then this is a curious bit of counsel that he gives. The Torah rather strictly prohibits the taking of interest based on the principle that one Jew should not profit from the debt of another Jew. And so in Exodus we can read, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. It's forbidden. Yet 
here, the master of the parable, the kind of the God figure or the Christ figure, is saying that that third slave should have gone to the bank and collected interest. It's not the only time Jesus will use a figure of less than impeccable character to stand in for God. The altogether vengeful king of his parable of the wedding banquet, for instance, is a notable example. That's maybe the strongest reminder to keep in view that we're dealing here with parables. Still, as he sits with his, his disciples and tells them story after story after story, what is he trying to get them to see? What is he trying to get us to see? In the view of N.T. Wright, in this particular parable, the first two slaves represent the disciples themselves, as well as the whole early church movement to which they will pass on everything Jesus has shown them. They, the disciples, are being entrusted with something more valuable than they themselves could possibly earn. And they needed to put it to work. That third slave, on the other hand, the one who cautiously buries his talent in the ground, represents a tradition that had become stuck and inward-looking. And so, Bishop Wright continues, the scribes and the Pharisees had been given the law of Moses. They had been given the temple, the sign of God's presence among them. They had been given wonderful promises about how God would bless not only Israel, but through Israel the whole world. And they had buried them in the ground. They had turned the command to be light of the world into an encouragement to keep light for themselves. I think that's a fascinating and fair interpretation of this story of Jesus, particularly in light of the devastating critique of the scribes and the Pharisees Jesus had voiced just two chapters earlier. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The whole of his critique is really looking at how their religious system had become small and inward-looking in spite of the gift it was originally. Yet I think there's more going on here as well. What was it that that third slave said when he reported back to his master, carrying his carefully protected single talent in hand? Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. Strange thing. Neither of the other two slaves gives even the slightest indication that they think of their master as being harsh or to be feared. They take what they've been entrusted with and they jump to it. Jesus is careful to say that the three slaves were entrusted with an amount, each according to his ability. And as he tells the story, it's pretty clear that the first two slaves actually believe it. They've been given a gift that they can actually do something with, and they do. 
The master in the story is only shown as being harsh when someone calls him harsh. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather what I did not scatter? Well, Charlie, you don't know harsh from nothing. I think part of what we are to hear, part of what he wanted Peter, James, John, Andrew, and the rest of them to hear, so we need to take that with which we've been entrusted. Our gifts, our talents, our passions, and our compassion, and put it to work. Trust that God has given you something real and act on it. Throw prudent and fearful caution to the wind and let your light so shine in the world. Perhaps most importantly, stop imagining God as a harsh master who will knock you down the minute you make the wrong step. It seems in this parable that the master is delighted at the risk takers who threw it all up and went for broke to see what they could do with the gift they'd been entrusted with. But remember this too for that poor third slave out gnashing his teeth in the dark. As N.T. Wright notes, This parable comes near the end of the long gospel narrative, which is about to reach its climax. And that climax comes when the Son of Man gives his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus speaks of someone being thrown into the darkness outside where people weep and grind their teeth, we must never forget that he was himself on the way into the darkness. Tough as this parable may be to grapple with, it would seem Jesus was entirely unwilling to consign any character to a place he himself was not prepared to go. Tough as he can be on the scribes and the Pharisees, as Jesus steps into the darkness of abandonment on the cross, he's doing it for them too. And maybe us, as sometimes fearful third slaves, burying our own talent deep into the ground, need to learn to trust that deeper mercy and need then to rise to the joy of actually releasing in risk all we've been given. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.